Hello, welcome back to the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. My name is Sam, and I am joined by my friend, movie soulmate, co-worker, kind of neighbor, religious enemy, and as of the last episode, unfortunately, movie enemy, because he doesn't like one of my all-time favorite movies. Steve, Steve, how are you doing today? I and a fine day to you. <laughs> what was that? Was that even- That's my best Scottish, but it probably sounded a little terrible. Irish. They literally just, was it? I almost, I almost want to redo this, just because they just sound like you had a stroke. <laughs> I and a fine day to you. That's lad. Like, that's like How about that lad. I should have thrown in a lad. You just sound Irish and German, and like you got a stroke. Well, I on. am Irish and German, all right. and all those things, and let's, Scottish. Let's talk about today's episode. Um, I feel more passionately about the type of movies we were reviewing than the movies themselves. Although I like their movies that we're going to review themselves quite a bit, but um, I don't know what you would call today's theme. But for me, it's inspiring movies, um, uplifting movies heartfelt movies i mean what would you call it feel good feel good feel good okay so i've been you know i think i've said stuff about this to a degree on this podcast before um about the kind of movies i like now versus when i was a younger man i'm still a young man i'm 36 okay but i've been aware of how much i like movies since i was 13 years old okay and 13 year old sam loved tarantino usual suspects anything where people were being cool right cool some violence oh man a twist ending you really got me there right um a type of style a type of cool style um now i go i i I go completely the opposite and what i'm looking for more than anything is to be emotionally affected but that being said i don't want to just watch tragedy i'm not trying to watch schindler's list you know every day um (laughs) I generally want to feel good, and I want to find movies that uplift me and say something about the human condition, but not that the human condition is so terrible and dark and hard to get through, and why do we even live? I'm looking for things, you know, about good people living lives that are relatable, that frame life in such a way where you say, wow, I didn't look at life like this before. Um, and that's only possible if you're watching a movie in which nothing extraordinary happens. The last time we were talking, I was accusing you of only liking movies where it's, you know, Steve was just a normal guy until one day <laughs> he found the briefcase with the nuclear arms codes. <laughs> now the governments of the world are out to get him, right? So it can only be a movie in which everything that happens in the movie is totally plausible, Right. But, they, but they're looking at life in such a way where they're really examining it and they're saying to themselves, here is what life is about. Here's what the beauty of existence is. And these are the types of things I look for now. More than anything in movies, these are the types of movies that I want. Yeah. Well, in both of these movies, you could say um, not a lot happens. Which is now, what I love. <laughs> which is it's very important. What happens to these characters are very important to them at the time. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Uh, you know, uh, lives aren't hanging in the balance. For example, right, ready for somebody to do a uh, you know uh, the moral right or the moral wrong. It's just you know, how you how you treat people, right? You know, and 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 um, you know the choices. You know whether to pass up a yeah. cheap shot or not. Yeah, and see, you're like you're older than me. Um, but I'm something of, you know, I just like movies. I don't care what decade they come from. But what I'll say is, before the 80s, many more movies were about regular life, um, especially in the 70s, where they took regular people and they said, let's examine what it's like to live in rural Texas. Or, you know, it's just, 
And something has changed. Thank you, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. So this was my question. <laughs> um, you know, because I've read great books about movies, one specifically called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, which I think we've discussed on this podcast before, which is about basically the 1970s film movement. And in this book, the author, Peter Biskind, directly lays the blame of modern cinema at the feet of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, specifically Jaws and Star Wars, and said that these these movies completely changed the model for how movies were made. And it had to be high-budget, action-oriented uh, thrillers, adventure films, with less emphasis on human life. <laughs> would you say this is accurate? I would, but... Um... You know, I, I was I was a nuking um, Lucas and Spielberg, and perhaps that's a little unfair. Uh, the audience keep keep going to these movies, and they deserted small, challenging movies that were that were huge in the seventies. You know, mm -hmm. are are you shocked that the studio executives seeing where the pot of gold is uh, divert their uh, divert their money what? in a certain way? And even even the Oscars are sort of. The Oscar contenders have that kind of Spielberg Lucas thing too. Oh, absolutely. Where uh it's it's emotional grandiosity. Yeah. Or I hate to say this political grandiosity course, that no. will get you Oscars and they've turned away from that uh, instead of just looking at a person As and, a, and a story and, and seeing the, the challenging uh, things that that happen, it's harder to make that movie too. Right. It's a lot harder to make those things compelling. As the liberal in the room, I will tell you that you'll find many liberals who will totally agree with you on the Oscar thing. And Green Book was the most obvious example of this, of a movie that was, that you could just imagine 99% of the people who voted for it didn't even see it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> they just, it, it's virtue voting. You know, if there's virtue signaling, they were virtue voting. Um, I didn't hate Green Book. I did not hate that movie. I thought it was a, it was very easy to go down. Like Three Billboards was easy to go down. Ugh. Like Hidden Figures was easy to go down. But these movies aren't very complex, though. I like Hidden Figures by far the most out of those three movies, and it's not because I think Hidden Figures is a great movie. I just think it's it has the least amount of pretense to being a high quality of any of the three of them, and as a result, I like it the most. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little less pretentious than yeah, the other two. it's a crowd pleaser, and it knows yeah. it's a crowd pleaser, and I'm totally fine with that. Um, okay, I want to get back to something you said, though, about crowds deserting those movies. Mm -hmm. I don't think they did. I think it was the profit margins changed. It wasn't that the people who liked um, Five Easy Pieces stopped seeing Five Easy Pieces. It's just what they discovered is that they could get more people going to the movies who didn't typically go to the movies before. It went from something almost akin to literature, like people reading literature, to comic books, right? It's the idea that, not to bag on comic books, because I actually read comic books, um, but the idea is that when they started making stuff like Star Wars um, and Indiana Jones, they were getting people to the theaters who would never have gone to see these five easy pieces um, style movies. So I, I don't, you know, movies in Hollywood, you made a movie for $5 million, you made $25 million, and it was a great success. And the profit margin, if you know, if you made fifteen million dollars in profit, that was considered good. Like that's that's the idea. You just make a bunch of movies that make fifteen million dollars in profit. Then when the model became spend a hundred million dollars, but you make four hundred million, well, it was a no brainer for Hollywood. Yeah, it's less less return on the dollar as a percentage, but it's a lot more dollars. Exactly. Um, the only the only. 
unfortunately, for the last 30 years, the only, uh, I think, genre that, that picks up on this isn't the compelling family drama or community drama. It's it's horror movies. Yeah, right. <laughs> horror movies, you know, low 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 budget, huge, generally, yeah. uh, almost always a profitable return. I remember hearing um, one actress, I think it's uh, Vera Farmiga. And I, I, yeah, Vera Farmiga. Wonderful actress. Uh, they asked her why she did this one particular horror movie, and she said, because they paid me. <laughs> But you know what? A lot of these other, the high-end quality <laughs> movies, you don't get paid as much. It's harder to get paid. But you know what? That movie was well-reviewed, actually. That was one of the most well-reviewed horror movies of the last three or four I decades. don't think we're talking about the same one. The you're Conjuring. Probably, you're, what, what? The Sorry? Conjuring. The Conjuring. Right. Yeah, that, we're not talking about the same oh, one. Oh, we're not talking about the same She made this ghastly movie okay. with Peter Skarsgård. Uh, uh, yeah. Two wonderful actors in this just a ghastly movie about uh, they adopted a young a, a daughter who w- was thirteen, but in real life was like thirty. <laughs> and it was just, just horrendous. We're getting way off the track. One last thing though, yeah. What happened to the people who went to go see Five Easy Pieces and Easy Rider? They grew up, they had kids, and they started taking them to Spielberg movies. The problem is the next generation of young kids. Well, I hate to say it, that was me. <laughs> That was me. Um, we didn't. We didn't support these movies. We okay. went to go see Star Wars too. <laughs> Not me, Steve. I was always. I was a boy of class. It's all my fault from Sorry, the very guys. beginning. And my son, you know, I'm gonna do my my damnedest to make sure my son watches good movies. Now I'm not gonna force movies that are too mature for him down his throat when he's too young. But what I what I have been doing is I have an appreciation for like children's entertainment. I really think there's really classy good children's entertainment out there and i've been watching some of that stuff since i've become a father without my son and then note like cataloging it and saying when he's this age i'm gonna have him watch steven universe and when he's this age i'm gonna watch avatar the last airbender when he's this age i'll have him watch the ducktales reboot so the point is i want him to watch the really well written good quality kid stuff Put Black Stallion on there, please. Oh, of course. The best one. Without question. I love that you put me onto that. But the point is, I want him to watch the good kid stuff so that it'll help prepare him and and shape his mind for the good adult stuff. Okay. Well, that's good. We've had a good good little rant, basically, (laughs) on the kinds of kitchen sink dramas, uplifting human stories that we like. I have a great idea. Why don't we talk about some movies? Okay, so <laughs> so technically, neither of these are my pick. Um, you recommended both of them to me. We're going to pretend that this first movie is my pick, but it's really not because you told me to watch it. It's a fantastic film. It's called Nobody's Fool. Paramount Pictures presents Paul Newman. How about you and me go out there and get ourselves naked and then just see what happens? Okay. 60 years old, still getting crushes on other men's wives. I would hope by the time I'm your age, I'm a little smarter than that. Can't hurt to hope. Sure off to a slow start. In a movie you can count on. I could legally shoot you and get away with it. To surprise you at every turn. Not unless I'm breaking an enter. Are you going to break an enter? <laughs> Does it ever bother you that you haven't done more with the life God gave you? Not often. Now and then. Nobody's fooled. Okay, Steve. So, what are we gonna do first? Plot summary for Nobody's Fool or well, let me, stats? Let me, let me get this. Let me give you the stats. Okay. Uh, Nobody's Fool went into wide release in January thirteenth, nineteen ninety five, which is appropriate because the the uh, movie takes place during the winter. It was released by Paramount and runs about one hundred and ten minutes. It was written and directed by Robert Benton, which is kind of interesting. And maybe we'll get on to we'll that. We'll get it. We'll have to bit. get into Benton because he's great. Yeah. And I didn't even yeah. know who he was before I saw this movie. 
Yeah, uh, we'll definitely get into that. It was based on a novel by Richard Russo. Now, Richard Russo and Robert Benton worked again on another movie. I think it was the very next movie with Paul Newman, which had some of the same qualities as this movie. It's kind of gentle, quiet movie, but mm -hmm. it's a, it's a uh, detective movie called um, Twilight. No, it is not that stupid uh, werewolf vampire movie. It's actually an intelligent um, movie. It's it's very lacking compared to this. And then they made a TV miniseries based on, I think, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel Rousseau wrote called Empire Falls with right. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these guys uh, have produced some really interesting stuff. This was their first collaboration. Sorry, I want to pause. Have you seen Empire Falls? Yes, I did. Is I read good? the book. Is it good, the, the miniseries? I've always thought about watching it. I'd read the book. Um, uh, I, I think I think the, the book was a little more stinging. Okay. Than than the miniseries, but the miniseries was good too, and it okay. also stars uh, Paul Newman's wife Joanne Woodward as All well right. as Paul Newman. Continue. Uh, it cost twenty million dollars. It made about thirty nine, so it wasn't a flop. No, but it was, it was about um, you know it drew even. It and it had a little critical love back then. It was nominated for two Oscars. Nobody who made this movie thought they were making a hundred million dollars. That's true. They were probably banking on Oscar nominations. And they, they got a few. Although I think you know if you care about Oscars, and I did back then. It was very underrepresented. It was yeah. best adapted screenplay, which you can't nominate. You and can't there, not nominate and, it for best. And screenplay. you know what? There's a reason why it didn't get as much because the movie's not heavy enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not about the Holocaust. They <laughs> well, they associate. You know, uh, I, I, I guess dramatic. I don't know. Uh, dramatic nihilism with dramatic weight. It's not the same thing. Uh, anyway, uh, also nominated for best supporting actor. It stars uh, Jessica Tandy, Bruce Willis, and Melanie Griffith. It is, and uh, it's just a terrific movie. Okay, and good, 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 good. Good luck on the plot summary, because it's really not a lot of plot. <laughs> yeah, no, that's why it's going to be song. fine. That's why it's going to be fine. All right, I can do this. All right, so Paul Newman plays this guy named Sully, who lives in an upstate New York town, because apparently in movies, uh, we'll get into this, uh, upstate New York is the only place in America where small towns exist. <laughs> um, seriously. Like, Second one, right? Start counting movies that take place in small towns. They all take place in upstate New York for some reason. <laughs> and he's a bit of a... What would you call him, Steve? What's the word for this? He's a misanthrope. I don't want to say a ne'er-do-well. Ne he's a ne'er-do-well. I yeah, like that. He's a ne'er-do-well. Yeah. He's a charming ne'er-do-well. He's really, really smart, but you know, he works odd jobs around town. He pays rent, but really doesn't pay rent um, at an old lady's boarding house played by Jessica Tandy in what I believe is her last film role. Yes, I mean she's yes. wonderful in it. She's she's fantastic. Plays Miss Miss Burl, I think. Yeah, if only we could all have a woman like that in our life who are just rooting for us. Yeah. Um, right. and he's older at this point. I mean, he's an old man. And what happens is, what you find out is that he had a family. I think a wife and a son. And when his son was born, I don't know about like a year old. This guy just took off. He just left the family. But the problem is, he didn't go too far. He <laughs> stayed in town. He got five blocks. Yeah, he literally got five <laughs> blocks, but wasn't uh, a man in his, in his son's life, uh, which is actually not unbelievable. It happens where fathers are in the same town as their sons, but they don't actually take part in their life. So his now adult son, who is an out-of-work uh, college professor, comes to visit for what I believe is Thanksgiving, Right. Yes. Thanksgiving. He comes to visit the mother and he brings his two sons with him as as well as his wife. But what you find out is the adult son is having marriage problems. And very soon into the film, his wife leaves him and takes one of the sons. And what transpires from here on out is 
Paul Newman and his son start to reestablish a connection together. And it's under the pretense of Paul Newman's son, who is an out-of-work college professor, starts taking on small odd jobs with Paul Newman around town, specifically for one great sleazy character played by uh, Bruce Willis. And, it, and it's about, you know, not only Paul Newman reconnecting with his son, but also really, I think, learning a lot of those parental instincts through his affection for his grandson, which is, I think, how it really starts. Yeah, this is his second, I guess, his second chance. Not in a big, dramatic way. It doesn't no. really emphasize uh This movie's a comedy, through and through. It is a comedy. Yep. It is a comedy. Uh, think about Jessica Tandy. Um, she, um, well, the first line of the movie... The first thing that happens is an, a branch falls on a uh, bird feeder mm-hmm. or bird uh, bird bath. Yeah, outside her house. And she starts talking to herself, wondering, you know, geez, I think God's getting closer. And she talks to a picture of her dead husband, and she says, I don't know, I think this is the year God lowers the boom, you know? Yeah, she, she basically, she has this, this, this feeling that God is out to get her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's out to kill her. Tragically, and it, it, it's, it just makes it a little more poignant, I think. She did pass away before the, the movie was released. Yeah, she was super yes. old. I mean, if it made Jessica Tandy feel better, God is out to get all of us. Yes. Um, and he wins. <laughs> he wins every time. What but, is he, uh, six billion and zero? So look, this movie is a comedy, and it, it never has a moment, except for possibly one, which is a quite understated moment, but it never has a moment in which there is some grand, dramatic confrontation in which he laments the state of his life and all his regrets and a big, you know, marriage story style fight. Yeah. You know what I mean? There isn't that moment in this movie. It never gives it to you. I like, I like that observation because the one thing in his life, he, he, he's not destroyed by regret. No, not at all. In, in, in one way, he is... He, He's got it right in that he can navigate without baggage. He's unapologetic. Yeah. Now, uh, even when his son, his son confronts him on a number of a number of occasions. His son is played by Dylan Walsh, the guy from Nip Tuck. Nip Tuck, yeah, the nice, the nice one. Yeah, not, not I guess. the, not, not the Playboy. I guy. was gonna. One of my questions for you was Dylan Walsh. Good career. <laughs> one of the questions I was gonna write is, <laughs> well, we'll get to that a little bit later. Okay. But he, he he does put the screws to 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 uh, Paul Newman a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, you know, after after he says, "Oh, I only got five blocks," and right. he said, "You might as well have been on the other side of the but moon." But Newman is never apologetic, and there isn't a moment. He's not beat down, right? He's no. never beat down by his past regrets. He he feels them. You can tell yeah. he feels them. The movie is not. Um, it won't debase itself to have yeah. some moment where Paul Newman's in his car shedding a single tear and saying out loud to nobody, why did I do it? You know what I mean? <laughs> There's no head-grabbing moment, yeah, right? Yeah, no, this not going to do that. So let's talk about what this movie will do. Um, for starters, incredibly witty. This is one of the wittiest yes. movies you will ever see. A lot of the, And you can tell why Paul Newman took this role in his advanced age, because it's a banger. I mean, he, the guy gets the best lines in the movie. He is getting into verbal confrontations with every single guy in the town and winning all of them. Yeah, yeah. He get, imagine <laughs> being given a script in which you get the best last line in every scene, and that's what Newman gets in this. I used to love Neil Simon movies. Yeah, yeah I love them too. They haven't... I'm not sure how well they've aged because they always seem to be set up and 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 like nobody thinks that fast that clear. Um, I still lo- I still love. Well, you uh, want to talk about Neil tone? I mean, Neil Simon movies make this movie look like Schindler's List. Yes, you know what I mean? <laughs> that's true because especially later, yeah, he, he got in. They got into the drinking and the yeah. you know tackling social issues and stuff like that. Uh, no, this movie. 
the, the, it's amazing. You, you said that it was witty, mm-hmm. but th- these aren't these aren't like comedic lines, or they're just so perfectly. There's such perfect responses. These people you know? are not too smart for their environment, right? These yes. are not Quentin Tarantino characters, right? This is not a town of geniuses. These lines don't feel written. As it's the yeah. best compliment I can yeah. give. It, they, it doesn't. They don't feel yeah. written. They don't. I mean, that, this is what is. So we're talking about you know the wittiness of the movie and how, but these characters all feel organic. And this is really important because one of, you know, you and I are huge fans of the Simpsons. And one of the things the Simpsons has done so well over the years is they have created a community in which every character has an important inner life, right? Yeah. Um, every single character on the Simpsons has a backstory, has a life, has a distinct personality. And that's what this movie does. This movie has a town and they populate this town with people who all have distinct inner lives, even in the shortest moments. You can just tell that these are real people. They have put a lot of thought into every single character, no matter how small the scene. And in fact, one of the characters I think who best um, exemplifies this is Margot Martindale's character, who is the local town bartender. The great... Talk about your quintessential great broads. I hope I'm not offending yeah, anybody, right, right. but she is the quintessential great broad. Because she's tough as written. nails. Yes, she's tough as nails. She doesn't take a little bit sweet, shit. a little sweet, but a little she sweet. is sweet, and yes. that's the point. And I think my favorite line in the movie is, uh, "Sully's at the bar, and he says to something to the Margaret Martindale, like, like, hey, why don't you and me go on? Let's get out of here.' He's playing, he wants to sleep with her, and she just looks at him. She goes." Sure. <laughs> just one, just sure. Yeah. Nothing romantic. Nothing at all. Then he, somebody really says something. And she's calling his bluff. Yeah. She knows he doesn't want to do it. But I want to get into that because yeah. um, there's a side character. One last thing about what Please. you just said. Uh, the way Paul Newman talks to Gene Sachs. Which who, one is he? Uh, he, he is lawyer? his lawyer. Yeah. Gene Sachs was a very notable Broadway director and a, even a movie director. Actually, okay. he directed a couple of Neil Simon movies. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. Um he the way he the way Paul the Paul Newman character talks to the Gene Sachs character is different from the way he talks to the Bruce Willis character. You know, there he, he rags on both of them, but he only goes so far with one, and he knows he can go farther with the other one. He calibrates. What you said, they had a backstory, they have a history, mm-hmm. and there's so many comedies that don't acknowledge that in their characters. This movie, just by the interplay, you know how far they go back. Right. I gave I once asked you was affliction an indictment of small town america well this would be the opposite of that it takes the same thing which is that everybody knows each other where do you get my pitch right oh really okay so it says everybody knows each other but the difference is knowing each other is a good thing um it creates empathy so it's interesting you say that because all right so paul newman rags on everyone i mean Mm. he is the sharpest man in town despite the fact he's one of the least successful um but so gene Sachs is his lawyer uh, for for uh, Paul Newman because Paul Newman has been trying to sue his sometimes employer Bruce Willis for like years. <laughs> Bruce Willis is like a contractor, like he he gives Sully, who is Paul Newman's character, uh, contracting jobs like all over town. You know, replacing roofs, painting houses, that type of thing. And he gives contractors a bad name. Yeah, they already exactly. have a bad he's a, name. He's a sleazeball, and and you know so. Paul Newman got injured on one of his jobs, and he's been having his lawyer, who's quite incompetent, uh, try to sue (laughs) Bruce Willis for like a decade now, and it's not working. And in fact, in one of the best lines of the movie, and I'll say because I'm Jewish, uh, he's a terrible lawyer. And Paul Newman says something to the effect of like, he's like, he's like, I met the only Jew who's not smart. No, he. What do you say? (laughs) He said. uh, (laughs) 
uh, he was going to be, uh, he's going to, for Paul Newman going to have to work on Christmas and he didn't, because the movie extends a couple of weeks into Christmas yeah. and he says, uh, I don't want to work Christmas. And, and the, the lawyer says, don't blame me. It's not my holiday. <laughs> I'm Jewish. And he said, you're Jewish? He said, yeah. How come you ain't smart? Right, exactly. <laughs> it was so funny. But not the slightest bit malicious. You knew that yeah. he could say that to right. him and They're not alienate friends him. And they have affection yes. for each other. And quite and the fact of the matter is the lawyer is doing Bruce, is doing Paul Newman more of a favor than Paul Newman is doing the lawyer. That's true, yes. But that being said, so uh so Sully, Paul Newman's main antagonist in the film, is Bruce Willis. But if this is his antagonist, then it's basically nothing because <laughs> the fact of the matter is he never he shows affection for who you could consider to be his worst enemy he, in the town. Absolutely. It's almost like he's the son, yeah. you know, that he didn't treat well. He rags on him. Yeah. Bruce Willis is married yeah. to a beautiful young woman uh, played by Melanie Griffith. Beautiful in and out. Oh, she is she is she is Terrific! I I think this is her best performance, better than than Working Girl. I Without thought she was fantastic. This is the only movie Melanie Griffith has ever been in where she didn't annoy me. <laughs> I mean, I don't like Melanie Griffith. I don't like her voice. I don't like her understated style. She annoys me. Like I I think she has no edge, no grit, mm-hmm. and as a result, it irritates me watching her be so passive in all her films. Not this one. I thought Not she was this great. One. In fact. You said uh, Paul Newman's the smartest. If he yeah. isn't, she's the only one who's smarter. Yeah, exactly. She actually, I, I get the feeling, I don't know, but I think the original novel this was based on, maybe uh, she's maybe 10 years older, maybe maybe um, Paul Newman's 10 years younger. Make the age, because there's a romantic yeah. thing here Well, they going. say that he's about, he's about 60, when in fact he was about 69. And they have this flirting thing going. And she is Bruce Willis's wife, by the way, in case we yes. didn't mention this. Yeah, we, we, and, and, and their marriage is on the rocks, because mm-hmm. Bruce Willis' character keeps uh, <laughs> having uh, his topless, has, has, has his uh, secretary. He and keeps topless sleeping with his secretary. poker, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it took me, oh, this is the first time, by the way, I noticed that his second secretary was a second secretary. I didn't realize that the second person, because she, she looks identical right, to the first right. one. He just keeps making, the point is that Bruce Willis keeps making the same stupid mistakes. Mm-hmm. He promises his wife he'll do better, yeah. but he doesn't. There is this fantastic scene where they're flirting, because they're flirting all throughout. Paul, uh, Sully, and Toby, who's played by Melanie Griffith. Good name for a girl. I like that. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it's, Good name it's, for a girl? A man and a dog. There you go. Really, just a good name. <laughs> what more jazz for? Yeah. What more jazz for? But what makes I think it was her finest moment in the movie. Um, they flirted a little bit before, only this time she's half serious. Yeah. But he doesn't treat it seriously. He gives off uh, just a, a, a throwaway, wisecrack line, dismissing you know any what, what could happen with the flirtation. And if you look closely, she's irritated by that. Her face falls, and she's disappointed because she thinks there is something there. That is a wonderful moment. So this this connects to a later moment. Okay, so so basically, there comes to a he- the the Bruce Willis Melanie Griffith relationship comes to a head. And at this point, Melanie Griffith says to Paul Newman in front of Bruce Willis, he says. Basically, what she what she says is she got two tickets to like Hawaii or something, and she's taken Paul Newman with her. Right, which means they're really going to cement their relationship. They're going to make it real. But the thing about Bruce Willis is that he knows Paul Newman's character, you know, inside <laughs> and out. And he says, "Trust me, he's not coming with you." And the reason is, what is Paul Newman's biggest? What's his character's biggest fear in this movie? It's commitment. It's commitment of any kind. Commitment to his wife, his son, to even like human. Um, 
what's the word I'm looking for when two people know each other really intimacy. intimacy. He, he has a, he has a disdain for intimacy for letting anybody too close. And and Bruce Willis knows this. I think that's why he made light of yeah. her fairly serious exactly. flirtation. That's, that's I think a good, he point. knew. I don't think he was ignorant to the fact that she was serious. He might have got a little nervous in that scene, Paul and hoping that, that that this would diffuse the, the Paul seriousness. Newman's a smart enough guy. He knew the character knew. Yeah. He would never play it that dumb because it's not a dumb character. No. The character is deliberately pretending like he doesn't know that she's being serious. Yeah. What I wanted to say about the Bruce Willis character as well is that as much affection as Paul Newman has for the Bruce Willis character, even though he can't stand him, it goes the same. These characters never go for the jugular with each other. There is always a limit to how far they are willing to go, and it makes the whole thing so believable. Because if you live in a small town with a guy you've known your whole life, and you're not friends, you don't love each other, but you've known each other forever, there is a... there's a fundamental respect and decency you're going to pay one another, even if you can't stand each other. Mm-hmm. And that's what these two guys do, which makes it believable. It doesn't turn into some stupid comedy about two neighbors who are you know, at war with each other. And Lord knows how many times that's been done. Yes. This movie has that exact plot. Yeah. Um, there's a snowblower that Paul Newman steals because it's his compensation. Yeah. And, and, and it keeps going back and forth and back and forth. Even you're, but I think you're right. Even the Bruce Willis character, as insulting as he is he to virtues. Paul Newman, he has he, he recognizes his virtues. He keeps throwing him work, and I think there is a little bit of when he announces that Toby is pregnant. Yeah. All right. There is a certain amount of pride that you know he he expects Paul Newman to feel for him. Paul Newman says when he says, uh, "You, you want to be the Godfather," he says. Hey, I can't be the godfather and the father. (laughs) So that's one of those beautiful insults. But you know he's kidding. Yeah, Bruce Willis isn't a wholly terrible guy in this. No, no, not not a hundred percent. No, that and that's he's a a scoundrel, but he's 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 the the kind of human um, frailties that you know the worst of us are. There's only one true dipshit in the movie, and that's a cop played by oh yeah one of the all time greatest actors who ever lived, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Summer Sam plays, plays this young cop who's really got it out for Sully because yes. Sully basically gives him the finger every time he sees him. And, you know, nothing <laughs> cops dislike more than, you know, blatant disrespect for their authority. But, you know, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character, I got to be honest, I didn't see the I didn't see the affection for his character from the writer. Oh, not not at all. No, yeah. in fact, it leads to one of the one of the terrific lines by the judge when he finds out that, uh, you know, that the, the cop has discharged recklessly. His his gun. He basically shoots at Paul Newman <laughs> just because he's he's driving on the sidewalk, so, which he shouldn't be. So then Paul Newman punches him in the face. <laughs> he can't help it. Yeah. What did what, what, what did his uh what did he say? Yeah. Right before he, Paul Newman gets out, this is how smart and self aware he is. You know, a wise person would just walk away. Yeah. But he can't. It's he a gets trailer moment. It's a moment that's literally in the trailer for the movie because oh, that's, <laughs> yeah, he's he, basically the cop, uh, Phil Seymour Hoffman's got the gun pointed at Newman. Newman's in his car. He's been driving on the sidewalk. <laughs> and Newman says to his son who's right next to him, he goes, a wiser man would would stay in the car at this moment. And then he just gets out and he confronts him. So, so basically uh, Hoffman's like, don't come one step closer or I'll shoot. And he comes another step closer and Paul Newman, sh- oh, sorry, and Hoffman shoots the window shield of the car and and paul newman looks at him and goes you fucking asshole and he just punches (laughs) him in in the the face face. like he wasn't a cop but some but some dipshit in town because that's what he is he's a dipshit in town who became a cop 
That's true. You know, nobody really has status in this town. Nobody. The only one who pretends to be uh, well, has status. I guess the judge has it. The, well, the judge, but only through his, not through his position, but through his his moral authority. Does he? He just seems smart, and he seems like it's common a common sense. It's a common character, though, in movies. Yeah. A small town, but the judge is that. The and judge... he's a little acerbic, and yeah, and yeah right. he says he says uh, to the cheat to to Philip Seymour Hoffman's boss. You know how I feel about uh, arming morons. You arm yeah. one, you got to arm them all. Right. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fair. Right, right, right. <laughs> now, I, I, I do, I do um, admire how they treat each character. The, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character, that that role is beneath Hoffman, but Hoffman is not. He's a the movie man. isn't beneath him, though. The movie isn't beneath him. I could see why he would take this this kind of thankless role. He doesn't have any great lines at all. He's just he's just a jerk. I can see why he took it. Well, one, he wasn't he didn't hate you. He was about two years away from really achieving huge status. But also to work with these these other actors. I have a theory about Hoffman. I'm going to go on a little side tangent here. When Hoffman died, you know, obviously I thought how sad uh, for such a talented person to die in such a tragic way, a heroin overdose. And I think everyone was a bit surprised of all the people to die of heroin overdose. So it would be Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that teaches us something about ju- drug addiction in general. That being said, when he died, I looked at his filmography and I was already a fan and I realized something. If you want to have a debate about which American actor has the greatest filmography ever. So I'm not saying who is the most talented American actor ever. I'm saying who has been in the most good movies. I think that if somebody said Philip Seymour Hoffman, you couldn't completely dismiss the argument. Even for movies he has small roles in like this. This man, the amount, the sheer amount of good movies he was in, whether he had leading roles, but far more often supporting roles, is staggering. And not only that, you said, you know, he plays a dipshit in this movie. He played a dipshit in a, in um, Scent of a Woman, which, by the way, I'm classifying as a good movie, even though people don't like it. Yeah. Um, he probably got that got this role yeah, based on his right, work on that exactly. role. Exactly. Something I want to say about film Seymour Hoffman has, is that never has somebody, in my opinion, or you can argue this and that's fine, um, but just coming to mind, portrayed or, or had such an innate decency coming out of them it seems like and been so able to also portray absolute scumbags and shitheads because he's done it both he's played the uber sensitive decent person in movies like in uh magnolia and he's played dipshits like in this and uh punch drunk love and uh you know son of a woman the guy could do it all uh, what was that with Jude Law and Matt Damon, the talented Mr. Oh, Ripley? Oh, yeah. I mean, what he a smarmy so th- piece of shit. T- a tiny role, and yet he was so threatening. Yeah. He was so threatening in that movie, and then you compare that, pair that with um, Capote, yeah. if you can get past the accent, yeah. you know. Uh, he, he, I can't think of an actor who had substantially more range yeah. than Philip Seymour Hoffman. All right, so let's get into some questions here. My first question mm-hmm. for you, Steve, is what's your favorite scene in this movie? Do you have a favorite scene? Uh, there are a lot of fantastic ones, but there the, the one dramatic moment in yeah. the movie is it's so underplayed. It's like yeah. Robert Benton insisted yeah. that we're not going to go for the theatrics, right? But there's this beautiful scene where he he returns to his um, childhood home, which is mm-hmm. he's allowed to become dilapidated. He still owns it. The city he's not owns allowing it, it to become dilapidated. He is actively 
rooting for it to become dilapidated. True, true. He has he hasn't kept it up because he has such terrifying memories of his own childhood. Mm-hmm. His father was a brute. His mother took. Well, uh, actually, that that is the quote. Yeah, it's my favorite his quote of the movie. Beatings. You give the quote, and what he said was uh, he, he's talking with Bruce Willis. Yeah. Bruce Willis wants to um, you know reclaim some of the wood in there, but he's terrified of even stepping foot in it. He he. he it, he doesn't want to at all. Uh, Sully, that is. Not Sully, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, he's terrified of going into that, that house. When he gets in there, Willis, in it, you know, a degree of sensitivity, can see just how disturbed he is being in there. And he starts talking about some of the brutality his father inflicted on the family. And he said, uh, he actually was talking about afterwards when right. he, with not his grandson. I'm sorry, you're right. He yeah. comes back out to the... To the um, uh, to his truck, starts talking with his grandson, whom he has left by himself, mm-hmm. and he has to smooth that over. Um, anyway, he's talking to, with his son yeah. later, and he says, your grandmother took the uh, the worst of it. She was just a little tiny, she was just a tiny little woman. My God, he can make her fly. Yeah. That sent chills down my, uh, down my back. That That's incredible writing. It's incredible dialogue writing. Yeah. Yeah. understated and the way newman brings it off he it's like he can't he can barely believe right what his father inf- did to his mother so i'm glad you brought up this scene because it allows me to praise newman a little bit um when they go into the house to inspect it and it's falling apart and, and bruce willis is just going about looking at the wood and stuff the camera focuses on newman for like 25 seconds and newman does this thing that Many actors try, and only the best actors can pull off, which is you just read it. He remembers. All right. When you watch an actor actively try to remember something, it can most often be terrible, right? <laughs> it's like you kind of like, you see their help, their head tilt up, and it's like you can imagine the thought bubbles coming out of their head, like bloop, 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 bloop. The mannerisms, the mannerisms. associated with trying to remember. And yeah. for him, it's the, it's the opposite. His, his whole demeanor goes stone cold. He just pauses like he's frozen in time. And the only thing that changes are his eyes and they start to water, but not in a way that's cheesy. And, and you don't know what's happened in this man's house in his family, but you know, but you obviously do know just watching him that something terrible has happened here. And this is the last place he wants to be. And there's a type of actor in America, Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt, um, Cary Grant, who is the guy in It Happened One Night? What's his name? Bugs Bunny's um, based off him. <laughs> uh, Clark Gable? Clark Gable, yeah. Bugs Bunny's based off Clark Gable, by really? the way. Yep, yep, yep. There's, By the way, What's Up, Doc? Uh-huh. Clark Gable line. Is and, that right? Yep, and when they gave Bugs That's Bunny... That's funny because in What's Up, Doc, I, I'm convinced that Barbara Streisand was cast as Bugs mm-hmm. Bunny. <laughs> and, and later they gave uh, Bugs Bunny, later on in the animation iterations of him, the thin mustache meant to resemble I'll Clark, be darned. Clark Gable. Anyways, Wouldn't guess that. So there's a type of American actor, I, we'll just call him handsome male lead, okay? Uh, and generally speaking, they are very good, handsome male leads. I have nothing but respect for them. Uh but their range and depth is not that of a classically trained actor, British actor, play actor, supporting actor. They're not Philip Seymour Hoffman, okay? And by the way, Tom Cruise, people think he's one of these handsome male leads, when in fact he's much more akin to someone like Sean Penn or Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, Tom Cruise has real, real acting chops. He's a real artist. He's 10 times the actor 
that uh, Brad Pitt and George Clooney are with just his pinky. The difference is he's a freaking crazy person who makes bad <laughs> movies, but he has more talent than them. Um, but the point is this. Paul Newman, you could say, is in this this prototype, handsome male lead. But he's a real artist. He's a real actor. He's a real actor. Don't he, be fooled. He is up there with... Um, he's with Olivier. With, yes. You know what I mean? And Brando. And Hoffman. And Hoffman. And Hoffman. Oh, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Yes. And Dustin Hoffman. The point yeah. is, his handsomeness, kind of like Tom Cruise, obscures the fact that he's a real actor. I mean, yeah. he's... If he had been less handsome, maybe he wouldn't have a job, but he'd stand a better chance than Brad Pitt or George Clooney would. The only reason I think that it's easier to recognize Tom Cruise's um, astounding acting talents is because he goes big. He goes big a lot. Paul Newman doesn't go big, but he that's not to say he can't. I think guys like Brad Pitt and George Clooney, they don't go big because they can't. They can't pull it off like, like Sean Penn can. Yeah. Paul Newman can pull it off. He just doesn't. And that's why I think people get fooled about what his range and talent are. You know, he's beloved as a person, but I don't... You know, it's hard to say that his acting skill doesn't get enough praise or that it's underrated in somehow. But I think that in some ways it is. I think it is. If you look at if but if you look at HUD, yeah. he kind of goes big in yeah. HUD. You do you know? like HUD though? Uh I don't love HUD. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I, I I do he like goes it. big it's a in the hustler. Movie. It's- he goes big in the hustler. The Hustler's mm-hmm. a big performance. It's just that not a lot of people have seen it. It's funny. The sequel, he completely modulates. Yeah, I know. It's awful. Don't, don't. So, <laughs> dear listener, uh, The Hustler's my favorite movie of all time. It just strikes. It's just, it's got everything I like in movies. A little bit of sports, a little bit of excitement, <laughs> some sex. But it's also, it's just incredibly poetic and deep. Okay. So, next question. Next question. All right. So, no, actually, no, I didn't say my favorite scene. <laughs> What's your favorite scene? My favorite scene is the end with the little boy. It, it just got me in tears. So Paul Newman's grandson is kind of a scary cat. He's scared of a lot of things. He's a timid boy. And Paul Newman is always trying to get him to be a little bit more brave. And the way they pull this off in the movie, it could so easily be corny or Modeling, saccharine yeah. or facetious, you know, yeah. but it works so well is that the, the, the Paul Newman's lawyer has one leg. He has a wooden leg. <laughs> and I guess one night he was super drunk at the bar and he forgot his leg. Or I think Paul Newman won it off. He won it in a, in a poker <laughs> he game. He won it yeah. in a game of poker. Um, and his lawyer is rather surly. You'd actually take my leg. Yeah, so, so, um, so Paul Newman decides to give him back the leg and he tells his grandson to bring it to him. And can you imagine for like a five-year-old boy bringing a man his wooden leg? That's really scary. That's a really scary thing to do. And the little boy, he shuts his eyes, I think, or something, or he counts. There's like a, there's a gimmick where he's like, if you can just be brave for like five seconds, you can be brave for 10 seconds. I think Newman gives him a watch. Gives him a stopwatch. A beloved watch. watch, And if you can be brave for one more minute, you can be brave for another. Right. So then the little boy brings this leg in a really kind of uplifting, courageous moment to the town lawyer. And by the time he, it's like a race almost. And by the time he brings it to him, they're all just cheering for him, basically. (laughs) It's such a sweet scene. And it really, once again, it shows you something that could happen to any little boy. I mean, really, it's not a far-fetched idea. And it says something about us all. It just, and it doesn't, the little boy doesn't, you know, he doesn't save a man falling off a cliff, right? This is something that could really happen. But for that little boy, it was a moment he had to get through and learn from. Um, and I just wish movies did this more. I, I think the I think Sully finally realizes, I, I didn't have to be in the house yeah. every minute yeah. for his kid 
I think maybe he realizes that, you know, it, it's just the little things. It's the little things that can make the difference. The little moments of time you spend, right. the little bits of advice that you can impart that could have made uh, uh, right. all the difference. By the way, the town lawyer is a real great friend to Newman because there's a great moment in this movie. I don't remember the exact scenario, but the town lawyer says to Newman basically, look, man, if you don't start doing right by some of the people in your life, he's like, I'm done with you. You yeah. know, he's always appreciated Newman's kind of pride in being a selfish, arrogant jerk. <laughs> they all sort of do. They find it charming. But at one point, he, he levels with them and he says, he says, this is too important, right? It might. I remember what you're talking about. Um, yeah. his, uh, his landlady, Yeah. he finds out that his landlady has paid the, the city taxes on his property so that he owns it. And the, he one knows that he, that... the one that he's trying to let fall apart as yes. some sort of revenge against his father who loved the house. Right, and right. he would be only too happy if the city did seize it. Yeah. So the so uh, the Gene Sachs character says, "Listen, you you got to be surprised, and you got to be grateful. Yeah, you got to be don't, grateful. Yes, you have to be grateful. And if you're not, if you don't, I'm done with you. Yeah, yeah and it's just and that great. scene does play out. Yeah, not exactly as you think. Not exactly because yeah. he does gl- kind of glare at her a little. He's glib he about him. it. He's glib He's about glib, it. He's glib. Yes. He basically doesn't say like thank you. I'm so appreciative. Right. If anything goes like I forgive you. Yes. And something like that, yeah. <laughs> he can't completely bring himself to be dishonest. You know what I mean? Cuz that character, he says what he thinks. Yes. And to not say what he thinks kills him. To affect gratitude would be anti-sully. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? All right. So, so next question. We got to wrap up this movie. Um let me get out my notes here. Uh do 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 do. Okay, um, did Bruce Willis make all the right career decisions? Could he have done more? The he, reason I say this is I that he's good in this movie. He's legitimately mm-hmm. a good actor in this movie. There, there, was, there was this um, a really uh, a very powerful film critic, and, and, he, uh, and this was about 10 or, 10 or 15 years ago. He, he, he did a list mm-hmm. of all of the uh, current actors you yeah. know matt damon and and george clooney and every one of them and i and i went down the reason and he smashed almost every single one of them accused matt damon oh he's just got a smushed face why why would you oh, wow. why would you even watch then he got to bruce willis and he said a waste this is a sensitive actor who has wasted wait who career. said this who is I, I don't remember who I, I don't it was it was some famous probably a new york yeah. film critic and i was so stunned about that but you know what Bruce Willis can really be a sensitive actor. Yeah. I saw it in, of course, everybody saw it in Sixth The Sixth Sense, Sense but yeah. I also saw it in uh, Pulp Fiction, yeah, dealing right. with his girlfriend. There is a sensitive guy there, and I hate to say this, I think after he was not nominated for an Oscar for uh, career, Sixth Sense, his which he should downhill. have. His career went downhill. I think he said, screw it. I gave a fantastic performance, and they can't acknowledge me. I'm going to take whatever they give me in the last 20 years, with a few exceptions. There's a few exceptions. He did, mm. he did a Wes Anderson movie that I thought was really good. What was yeah, that one? Uh, Moonrise Played Kingdom. Moonrise yeah, Kingdom. there was a few exceptions, but largely, it's screw it. I'm doing it for the paycheck. But you know what's crazy? Bruce Willis is a bargain bin actor now. Absolutely. He makes yeah. straight-to-home video movies yeah. now. In fact, he's, he and Nick Cage. I, he's, I think Nick Cage still makes bigger movies than him. I think Bruce Willis has had the biggest fall from grace in terms mm. of being a big budget movie star to what he is now. I can't think of another actor who has really fallen so hard. Here's what I'll say. In, and that's too bad. In regards to my own question to you. Um, if you count it purely by bucks, nah, he didn't make any wrong moves. If you, if, <laughs> if you measure his career decisions by the amount of money he has, he played it right. He made a yeah. lot of money. 
if we think about it in terms of legacy and prestige, no. Um, that being said, he is in one of the most influential movies of all time. Of all time. Yeah. Die Hard. Yeah. Let's just be honest. Die Hard changed action movies forever. Um, every action movie had to be a comedy of some sort, right? Had to, they, they, they were wise enough to infuse a great deal of humor, absolutely. I mean, that's, but that's why it changed action movies. It yeah. went from being Rambo to Lethal Weapon, yeah. right? It, every, to, look at the Marvel movies now. You would not have the multi-billion dollar Marvel franchise cinematic universe if it wasn't for Die Hard. Because what makes those movies popular is their humor. I swear to God, I think they hire Bruce Valanche uh, <laughs> you know, for some, to inject a few jokes. Because, you, you know, you're yeah. right. Um, Bruce Valanche is his own... Uh, his own that's his own episode <laughs> let's not even go down the bruce well, just, rabbit hole All right. i'm cracking wise but. next question uh, why are the only small towns in america in upstate new york <laughs> they're not i think that uh, the people who write them live in new york city and they, they they deign to go out to the small towns but they're not willing to stray across the border i don't know I why don't whenever know. there's a small town in a movie it's in upstate new york and what's even crazier is that they're all affecting new england I think we might have talked about this with Affliction. You know what? I thought both Affliction and this movie, if you had asked me, I would have said it, they took place in New England. Yeah, they're all affecting New England when, in fact, they're upstate mm. New York. Very strange. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for you. Oh, okay. Mm. What is the one weak... Because I, I did recommend it to you, so I, I think I'm entitled to one question. Who is the weak link in this cast? Glaringly weak link. Glare. There's nobody that's glaringly weak. I disagree. I think there is one. Okay, um... I think at the end of the day, I mean, look, I, I didn't have a problem with his performance, but the son, he, yes. has an, he has an important role and he's not up to the caliber of Paul Newman, but not a lot of people are. He's not are. up to the character. No, he, he's not. A, that, that, that shouldn't be the, um, the grade. He's not up to the, he's not up to the, the rest of the, uh, the actors. Yeah. Including comes, Bruce Willis. <laughs> yeah. He, oh, he, he doesn't come close to Bruce, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is a movie star. He's got a charisma to him, and this son is a non-charismatic actor playing a non-charismatic guy. Yeah. That's tough. That's tough. If you have a non-charismatic actor playing a non-charismatic guy, you get someone who's not charismatic. <laughs> it, I, I hate to say this about anybody, and maybe it's because he's been cast this way, but he strikes... Uh, the actor's name is Dylan Walsh. Yeah. And he, he had been previously cast well in what they expected of him, but he is essentially a TV actor. Yeah. And when he when he complains to uh, uh, Paul Newman about how he, he neglected him, it's almost like uh, it's the same amount of weight as if he were calling being you know, not picked up on time at the end of a soccer match. It's, right. You don't see the scars with him. Now, if he were super melodramatic, it would have taken away from the movie. Yeah. But Robert Benton wanted to hire... Um, Jeff Bridges as the son. I almost have you a think problem it's too much with firepower. That. Too much firepower. Too much firepower. Really, yeah. You know who would have played a better son? Who's that? If he had been a little bit older? Philip Seymour Hoffman. Hoffman. Yeah, you know, you're probably right. Yeah. You need someone who's not a movie star, but a world-class actor, and that's tough. Yeah, yeah. And that's a good point. That yeah. is a good point. Okay, so let's do bad pitches. Um, I'll do mine first. This one's a little different. I did this one a little bit differently. I, this was the hardest movie pitch I ever had to do. Bad pitch. I just the movie's so singular. Well, yeah, there's no tacky movies right. or, or tacky yeah. approach that you would take yeah. the pitch this so, movie. So my pitch is, and I don't know if you understand this or not, Stephen King without the terror and if he liked small towns. <laughs> so Stephen King's whole shtick 
is that in every small town lurks a deep terror, right? A deep evil. A yes. deep evil. <laughs> but he does a good job. I don't like Stephen King, but he does a good job of creating the atmosphere of small towns. It's just that he hates them. <laughs> he thinks they're wicked, despicable places. So this is like if Stephen King uh, wrote a movie about a small town that he really enjoyed. <laughs> I guess it could happen, yeah. yeah. Well, it couldn't, but that's what this movie is. Yeah, he does. Stephen King ha- does not have the talent to write these characters, but he does have the talent to set the, set the atmosphere up. Yes. Stephen King I sucks. That. And if you're reading a bunch of Stephen King, you, you're wasting your time. If you're a teenager, read Carrie and The Stand and... Uh, Don't and, read The Stand. And uh, you know, read, read The Stand, read, read Carrie, <clears throat> read that, that vampire one, and then be done with them. Stephen King is a great screenwriter and a terrible novelist. That's the only way I can put it. He writes screenplays in novels. In novel form. And he's yeah. just expecting them to get made into movies. It's one of the most disingenuous things I've ever seen. And it works bananas for him. It does. It's been a cash cow. Okay, here's my pitch. Okay. Affliction with a better attitude. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right, that's fair. All right, anything, any, any other things to say about this movie? I just, it's one of my favorite. I love this. This movie had a smile on my face from beginning to end, and so does the next movie. Let's feel good. All right, so the next movie we are talking about today is a smaller film, I would argue even less well-known. It's called Local Hero. McIntyre is being sent on a very special mission. Anything out of the ordinary, you telephone me, night or day. To a most unusual place. What's the most amazing thing you ever found? Impossible to say. See, there's something amazing every two or three weeks. To a land that breathes with an ancient mystery. Where are we? And once you witness its wonders, you come to believe in its magic. What about the sky? Sky, sir, is amazing. I wish you could see it. I wish I could describe it to you just like I'm seeing it. 20th Century Fox presents Local Hero. Survey teams have found just about the only suitable bay on the entire coast. I think we should get a negotiator on the side right away. We're here on kind of a mission. Same here. I don't want to be coy with you, Gordon. We want to buy the whole place. We want to buy everything from the cliffs to the north, through to the bay on the far side. That's all. Oh, boy. Are we going to be in the beach? Peter Riger, Bert Lancaster. Take the chopper, go to Aberdeen, get on over to Houston. I want to stay here, run the hotel, do little bits of business. You can go to Houston, take the Porsche, the house, the job. It's a good life there, Gordon. Local hero. <laughs> the story of an ordinary man in an extraordinary place. Local Hero, a new film from the producer of Chariots of Fire and the director of Gregory's Girl. All right, Steve, you want to use stats for your Local Hero? Sure. It was uh, released in uh, another winter, barely winter, but winter uh, March 17th, 1983. It runs uh, almost the exact same length, 111 minutes. Um, Warner Brothers, uh, released in the United States, was written and directed by the Scott uh, Bill Forsyth. Yeah, who, by the way, is not the Bill Forsyth you're thinking of from one of the many remakes of uh, 
Well, there's an actor, Bill Forsythe. He's in um, Once Upon a Time in America from oh, our last right, episode. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, not that Bill Forsythe. Right. Uh, yeah. this, this William Forsythe. <laughs> yes. Um, it stars Burt Lancaster, Peter Rieger, and a whole bunch of Scots you never heard of, except possibly one. Wedge and we'll Tilly's. Oh, that was one of my questions. I my knew questions. right away, Steve. I knew right away. One of the best parts in this whole movie was an actor who played Wedge in the first three Star Wars movies. Actually... Not in number two. Are you sure? I'm 85% I would think sure. about it. He might be on Hoth. He might be on... I think I he know, appears that in Hoth. The guy who finds Luke Skywalker when he's in the ice is not Wedge. It's another character. When he's like, I found him. Oh, oh well, he's leader, fine. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, that's um, no, I him. think like during the battle sequences, I don't, uh, he, he might I be don't think he's in the movie. But we'll gonna have to later. look. Gonna have to look that up. Um, it cost about three million, and it made about six million, which is not bad at all for a you know, which essentially a foreign film. Somebody made three million dollars. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you want to give me three million dollars? I'll be, have at it. Or 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 um or thereabouts, and that that's all I have. Okay. All right. So. Let me do the uh, little bit of plot summary here. <clears throat> um, this movie's got an interesting plot. Basically, it's about a character named Mac, who is played by Peter Riegert, who I got a lot of commentary on later. I'll, I'll save my Peter Riegert commentary. He works for a Texas-based oil company um, based out of Houston. You're not entirely sure what his job is. It's like sales and acquisitions. You know, some real kind of powerful mid-level management job. And... One day, he is called into the office of the head of the company, the new... Is he the owner, played by Burt uh, Lancaster? CEO. The CEO, CEO, yeah. maybe owner, though, because his father bought the company, so... That's true. He's almost certainly uh, so I think a he's lead stockholder, yeah. And basically, he's being told that he has to travel to Scotland um, to purchase a small town in which they want to, what, drill for oil? Does that sound right? Or create a reservoir of some they, sort? They, they want to turn it into a, a, termin, a terminal, uh, an oil terminal. I yeah. guess it's a refinery terminal. And they think that the character Mac, uh, played by Peter Riegert, is Scottish because his last name is, is it McDonald? Uh, McIntyre. McIntyre. Although they call him Mac. Everybody yeah. calls him Mac. But his last name is McIntyre, and they think that he's Scottish, but so that he's he'll not. do good, he'll do well going to this Scottish town, when in fact, he's Hungarian. <laughs> and his, apparently his Hungarian ancestors changed their name to McIntyre when they got to Ellis Island because they thought that was an American name. <laughs> so he's already being sent to this small town in Scotland under false pretenses. He's got to go to this town, and he's basically got to buy the whole town. But this is a town. There's people living there. It's a small seaside town in Scotland. Very small. Everybody knows each other. This is another small small town movie and he goes there and basically i'm, I'm, I'm just gonna sort of uh give you the setup for everything that's going to happen he shows up he's got an attache played by a very young peter capaldi who is well known for playing doctor who and some of the later doctor who's i did not know he's that. also in the movie in the thick of it uh or in the loop sorry he's in in the loop He's the profanity-laced uh, political... That's the guy? Oh that's my the God, guy. I didn't realize that. He's also in the and series... he's fantastic yes, in that. He's in the series that In the Loop is based off of called In the Thick of It. I'll be darned. All right, and this is, by the way, if you, if you like that movie, that's also the creator of Veep. Same person. Yes. And also another wonderful uh, movie we'll probably do down the line. In called, the Loop, absolutely. No, yeah, not yeah, that. Yeah. The Death of Stalin. He also made the, yes, right, yes. So Peter Capaldi plays his young uh, attache to the town. They get to the town... They go to the uh, local inn where they're staying. Uh, the innkeeper is this guy played by the actor who played Wedge Antilles. I can't remember his name. I'm sure we can look it up. This actor, uh, Dennis by the, Lawson. 
who, by the way, is the uncle to Ewan McGregor. Small little fact there. Jeez, I didn't know that. Well, they're both yeah, so, so By the way, he was in Empire Strikes Back. I just looked up. Okay, great. I'm, I got to look for out for him. For five seconds, probably. Five seconds. I, I want to look out for him. <laughs> anyway, so so basically, he's the innkeeper. He owns the bed and breakfast where uh, Rieger Mac is going to stay. And Mac says to him, you know, hey, man, uh, do you know where the accountant is? And he goes, oh, yeah, the accountant's actually right next door. In fact, I can tell you he's going to be there in 15 minutes. <laughs> And Mac goes, great. And he goes to see the accountant. And in 15 minutes, it's the same guy uh, who owns the bed and breakfast. <laughs> and, what's, and in a running gag in this movie is that you find out that everybody in this movie in this town has multiple jobs. <laughs> Nobody has just one job. So the accountant slash bed and breakfast owner, what's his name? Do you remember? I'm terrible with names. It, so was the, so was the lead character. He can never remember the name. It's something. Oh, it's Ukahart. It's Urquhart. 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 But it's spelled U-R-Q-U-H-A-R-T. He's like Urquhart, Ukar. It's just Urquhart. Yeah, just right. try and pronounce that. He, I think it's Melvin or something. Right. His first name is a lot so, easier. So here is the gimmick of the movie. Urquhart has convinced everybody in the town to pretend like they don't want to sell the town. They all are dying to sell. <laughs> they want to sell this town as quickly as possible. But Urquhart, who is the town accountant, has said, trust me, if we pretend like we don't want to sell, and if we and if we pretend like we really appreciate our way of life, it'll drive up the price, and we'll all make more money. Meanwhile, Mac who is from Houston. He's a lonely guy. Nobody seems to like him. He's not actually particularly charming or winning. Hmm. The longer he stays in town and negotiates with the town members who are dying to sell the town, the less he wants to buy it because he comes to appreciate the way of life that they're pretending themselves (laughs) to appreciate, which is the great gimmick of this movie where Mac, the longer he stays, and the more different it is from the big city of Houston, his lonely condo that he lives in, the more he appreciates it, the more he says to himself, wow, these people have a really magical way of life. Meanwhile, the people in this town are like, this is a hard life. We want to sell. <laughs> we, we'll take your your Houston apartment, your, your luxury apartment and your Porsche that he mentions all the time. So that is, that's the general uh, conceit of the movie. Once again, this is a movie very much about lifestyle and community and knowing one another and helping one another. Um, you know, it, it's an uplifting film, once again. Uh, Steve, this was your pick. Why did you choose it? Why do you like this movie so much? I remember watching it. It just had some this magical feel to it. It yeah. looks magical. When did they get... Houston is Can made I pause to look you for really a second? ugly. Sure. Um, every review of this movie has the word magical in it. Why? There's no magical... This movie's a fairy tale. But this and, and by the way, fairy tale has also literally been mentioned. Yeah. But why? There's no magical realism in this movie. <laughs> Never once did I think it was a fairy tale. Explain it to me. What am I missing? It, it's it's a fairy tale in every in every sense except no magic. You know, no official okay. magic. They do have a mermaid, and she's even web web foot. But yeah. uh, <laughs> but she's a marine biologist. She's a marine biologist. She's not really a mermaid, but she looks like a she. Yeah, you got right. web feet. <laughs> she is basically a mermaid. She's yeah. a beautiful woman with web feet. Right. Uh, this movie it has a fairy tale uh, attitude. It's a it's a reverse Frank Capra. Okay. If Frank Capra had made this movie, <clears throat> the heartless uh, corporation would come in, and a local boy would try to rally and save this town right. for uh, you know, and and everybody would be rallying around. We want to keep our way of life. What makes this movie so wonderful is the yeah, you're, like you said. 
they can't wait to unload this town. It's not like it's going. It's not like there's some radon problem yeah. or something. You know yeah. that it's not like they just want to be rich. Yeah. They a group of the group of fishermen uh, at one point they realize how much they're gonna be gonna make, uh, and they start talking about luxury cars. And somebody says something like. Oh, uh, you know, you, did, you know, saying, "Oh, don't don't go with that car. Try try put a lobster pot in a Maserati." You they're, know, they're, it's they're, hilarious. They're debating which car is better, a Rolls Royce or a Maserati. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's what it is. <laughs> like, try putting a crab pot yeah, in. They're a, in really a, they're really putting the cart uh, before the horse. Yes. And not only that, at one point. <clears throat> And I don't even think they've technically sold yet, <laughs> but they think they've sold, and they're having a drunken uh, kind of like community dance, for lack of a better word. It's like a party. Sort of, but it's also kind of... Uh, it's so odd that it's almost like, uh, you know, uh, people dancing around a maypole. It, it has It's more than just a party. It just feels like a... Uh, I think I a lot know, of small a, towns uh, do this. It's like a get-together, but yeah. the whole town goes, and they rent out the local community center, right? Yes, yeah. And one old man says the other old man, he's like, you know... I thought all this money would make me happy, but I'm depressed. And the other guy is basically telling him, he's like, well, you know, it's like, nobody told you, you know, that it's just really funny because they don't have any money. They're not, he's like, nobody I don't told fe- you being a millionaire was going to be easy. Yeah, he said, no one told you being a millionaire was going to be easy. The guy's saying, I don't feel any different. But the reason he doesn't feel any different is he doesn't have any money. He just <laughs> thinks he does. Nothing has changed. Apparently his fantasy life is letting him down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But everybody, he's the only one who has any yeah. second guessing about dumping this town. There's this hilarious scene. I, I think the minister is talking with the two, mm-hmm. and they, they meet him because uh, they're, they're going to talk to the minister. Maybe he can uh, facilitate yeah. something. And uh, what, they, what the two uh, business guys don't know, Peter Regan and his, mm-hmm. and his uh, attache, is that everybody is in the church and they're all discussing, like what you, what you said, how to get the throttle this company for the most possible amount of money. And while they're while they're talking with the minister in the background, way in the background, all the people they don't want to get caught meeting on a non Sunday about this, so they're all sneaking out. The attaché sees it, but Peter Rieger doesn't see it. It's a hilarious sight And gag. a really funny part before <clears throat> that sight gag, actually. So literally, like, Peter Rieger doesn't see, like, a hundred people coming out of the church. But before that, he's talking to the minister, or maybe priest, actually. And the minister slash priest says to him, he's like, you know, Peter Rieger says, can you just keep this under wraps? And he says, I'll be as uh, discreet as the next man. He goes, but you should know, word travels fast in this town. <laughs> and as he says that, somebody in the church turns around and says to everybody else in the church, he said, word travels fast in this town. <laughs> you literally heard him and said it immediately. That's better than a text. Yeah, I mean, it's just, like, it's just a great gag. Something you mentioned about the Frank Capra evil corporation thing is that one of the parts also where they buck against the trend is that the owner of the corporation is not evil. He's played by Burt Lancaster. Wonderful performance. This is a hilarious character. Just, just fantastic. He, he's a real oddball. He's a real yes. quirky guy, and, and he's unsatisfied. He's uh, and a lot of things about him are not explained. Actually, um, true. So for starters, he seems to be extremely interested in what's going on in the stars because I think he's trying to get a comet named after him. Am I right about that? Yes. Yes. Like so, he's looking out for a very specific comet. He's like a planetologist type guy. Like he's got a heavy into astronomy, yes. heavy into astronomy. And he and he tells Mac he he's far more concerned with that Mac give him regular updates about what's happening in the stars <laughs> rather than like him purchasing the town. He couldn't care less because he believes that there's going to be this meteor that's going to cross over this town, and he wants to make sure that he's alerted, I guess, so that he can get it named after himself right away. 
Um, he seems to have absolutely zero interest in the oil game whatsoever. And then in one of the funniest but most unexplained gags in the entire movie is that the character played by Burt Lancaster, I can't remember his name, um, he's hired... Hap- Happer, Happer. Happer. Yeah. He's hired some guy, some crackpot <laughs> psychiatrist, to insult him regularly. It's, a, it's like an insult therapist. It's an insult therapist. <laughs> and the whole idea is to drive away the ego, I guess. So he hires this guy, and this guy's like, you're a piece of shit. Like, you got no family. Nobody loves you. All you're, throughout the movie. Yeah, all throughout the movie. You're all alone. And at some point, uh, Happer fires the guy, but the guy doesn't quit. He At one point, he starts... Because uh, he knows it's a great guy. It's a great, yeah. it's a great gig. But it's never explained. <laughs> it's never explained why the Happer character has done this. I think I think it's... The the first time I saw it, and, and when I re-saw it recently, it's another example. It's sort of like the Peter Riegert uh, character. He is dissatisfied with life and he's yeah. hoping this this weirdo um therapy mm-hmm. is going to shock him out of this malaise he's in yeah uh but it, what what a, what a hilarious uh concept is is an right. insult uh a therapist by the way there's one guy in the town who actually is appreciative of the lifestyle in the town and this he's is the a, Frank Capra character. Yeah, that so you this would is expect. important. There's a guy named Ben, and he lives on the beach, and he lives in a shack on the beach, and he's the one guy that won't sell. He won't sell his tiny bit of property, but his tiny bit of property is extremely important um, to getting the, the whole sale done, and in fact, the whole town is extremely annoyed at this guy. And what it turns out is that two of the most kindred, there are two pairs of kindred spirits in this movie. There is um, Mac. And Urquhart, all right. So, so they're kindred spirits. They're they're businessmen, and they just live on opposite ends of the world, right? But they love to haggle. They love to negotiate. They're, they they kind of got that like wise cracking, smarter than the next guy. They're kind of like young <laughs> sullies, but they didn't shirk their responsibilities in life, right? Good point. Um, in fact, um, and the they guy both love the same woman. <laughs> the guy who plays Urquhart, he has a really dark demeanor to him. I couldn't exactly really. There's a rage inside him. Wow, yeah. I didn't get that at all. I got a, there's a there there's an anger in him that I, I couldn't put my finger on. Um but it was there. I thought it was a really interesting performance. I I'm I'm really surprised. I love the performance too. Yeah. I love the the laid back feeling that he gave that um that, that I got from him. Uh what was remarkable is he has this fantastic sexual relationship with his yeah. wife. Yeah. <laughs> they they go at it like yeah, <laughs> like good for them. Yeah, and, and what's even crazier is that Mac falls in love with his wife, and Urquhart bears him no ill will. Not about at all. It. At one point, he asks Mac when 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 they're drunk at that party, "Hey, uh, can we swap lives?" No, Mac asks Urquhart. I'm sorry, did I say? Yeah, I'm, Mac, I, I got Mac that wrong. says to Urquhart, "I have a proposal for you." One because they've been negotiating yeah. over the sale of the town <laughs> all night, even though they're drunk. And at the very end, Mac says, "I got one more proposal for you. Let's swap lives." Yes. You can have my apartment, all my money, my, my car, keys to my car, keys to my car, everything. He goes, and I get your in. He goes, I'll, I'll do your name proud. He's like, but there's one other thing. I get your wife. <laughs> and what does he say? He says, I love her. She's the most beautiful. She's like the most beautiful woman I've ever met. And I love her. And what does what does the kid say? Do you remember? Sure. Oh, is that what he said? <laughs> he said, sure. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, these guys are just total kindred spirits. There's nothing they won't haggle over, including, yeah. God, I bet you, you couldn't make that joke today, man. He wasn't, obviously wasn't yeah, but, serious. Yeah, but it he's, doesn't he's, matter. Yeah. Couldn't make that joke no, today. No, that, that, that is true. And then the That's other kindred true. spirits are um, Ben, the guy who lives on the beach, yes. and Happer. Because, and we find this out, because Happer is so 
uh, dazzled with the, the the daily reports that Mac is sending back to him, he's got to get out there. He goes to he the town. He wants to go to the town. And in, in a very hilarious thing, Happer, who arrives on a helicopter... Do you remember what scene it was that where he arrives? It's the scene where all the people in the town are going <laughs> to uh, Ben's cottage to potentially assault him? Very un-Capra-esque. Yeah. It's like a mob. It's a mob. And they're, they're, we're gonna, this guy's going to start agreeing with us, yeah. and we're going to do something. And they see what at first looks like... A comet. A comet. That's the idea. And it's not a comet. It's Happer. And that's the whole idea, because they keep looking <laughs> at the sky for the comet, but the comet is Happer. Happer lands in a helicopter with his like company name on it, but then he has to crawl through a window to negotiate <laughs> with the da- with the town holdout who lives in a shack on the beach. The shack that doesn't have a door. Yeah, that's they what I mean. A big point you, about can that. Only, you can only get in through the window, and the entire town is waiting nervously as Happer is negotiating with Ben, but all you can hear is laughter. These guys are just yucking it up. And I'm not going to give away what happens in the end, but these guys are just yucking it up. They're clearly kindred spirits. Um, I got a question for you, okay? I know technically this was your movie, um, your uh, your pick, and you're supposed to ask me the questions. But here's my question. Did Dustin Hoffman take all of Peter Riegert's roles? (laughs) Uh, No. Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure that Dustin Hoffman didn't basically ruin Peter Riegert's life? <laughs> you think he would have been just fine in some of those roles? I think that Peter Riegert <clears throat> could have played a lot of the roles Dustin Hoffman played. Like, why did Dustin Hoffman have to play them all? <laughs> I mean it. Why do you have to play them all? Well, Peter Riegert did get Animal House. <laughs> so oh, is that not, him? That's him. That he would he played. Um, Boy, he was young then. Yes. He seemed Actually, really young. Actually, it's... It, or was the funny he old thing he is, seemed young? He was only five years younger because it was only five years uh, he aged a difference. He aged a lot in five years. Yeah. I guess the difference between Peter Rieger and Dustin Hoffman, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but there's a little bit of a sleaziness to Peter Rieger. Am I crazy on that one? No, Maybe no, it's not, just not the entirely. voice. Maybe it's just the voice. But yeah, I just feel like I kept watching him thinking Dustin Hoffman could have played this exact same role. And then I reverse engineered it, and I realized there's a lot of roles Peter Rieger could have played that Dustin Hoffman played. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. I, I think Hoffman is a is a really fantastic actor, and and Peter Rieger maybe on stage he maybe he, he's he's great. He just maybe he didn't get the chance. Although yeah, you don't know Peter Rieger maybe could have been that actor he if he could have gotten those great. roles. He could have maybe he could have been great. I haven't seen anything in that. It's because he didn't get the roles. That's, because he didn't get he the didn't roles. He didn't get the roles. Dustin Hoffman got them Hard all. Hard to prove a negative, but... Dustin uh, Hoffman couldn't have given up, I don't know, Kramer versus Kramer. Like, <laughs> Dustin Hoffman could have given up one of his many classic films, Midnight Cowboy, Kramer versus Kramer. Talk, uh, by the way, talk about somebody who has incredible filmography. Yeah, I know. <sighs> and not only that, but lead. He's been the lead in many of those movies. Mm. Philip Seymour Hoffman was really on the periphery of many of these great movies. Hoffman has been the lead. Here's some Oscar trivia. He's the he and Clark Gable the only three only um uh actors that I can think of that had a lead a starring role the lead role in three Best Picture winners. Oh, interesting. Um, uh, I mean Shirley MacLaine was really a supporting. Brando actress comes close, but he doesn't get it. No, he's got two. He's only got two. A lot yeah. of them have two, but he's the only one who's, who's managed three. So hold on, let me uh, try Nicholson was win three, but uh, Terms of Endearment was a supporting actor, so that doesn't count. Uh, he really sh- that's like a lead role, but yeah, I guess he's supporting. It's a romantic actor. lead, but it's not really the lead. Okay, so let me guess him. Midnight Cowboy. Uh huh. Kramer vs. Kramer. Yep. I didn't know that one. That one best movie. Nineteen seventy nine. Forget Apocalypse Now. Forget Breaking Away. <laughs> they decide to give it to. Uh... Boy, what is the? It's not Tootsie. No. No. That was, was nominated for best picture. Yeah, but I know that didn't. 
I I don't want to say I don't want to say the graduate. I don't think it's the graduate. Did the graduate won best picture? No, it, it won best director though. Okay. What's the third movie? Ten minutes to Wapner. What? Ten minutes to Wapner. What is that? Rain Man. Oh yeah. Uh, you know what? Meh. Rain Man's not great. It did, I I don't love Rain Man. You know what, Bobby? Pe- I don't even Peter Rieger, he could have played Tootsie. He could have done it. Think so? He, he absolutely could have played a self absorbed actor. No question. He could have done it. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, I can't imagine anyone right, better one than more question. than that. Yeah. If you're Dustin Hoffman and you've uh-huh. got to give Peter Rieger one of your good movies, right? you got to retroactively give him one of your roles. Uh-huh. You're Dustin Hoffman. Which one are you giving him? Which one can you say goodbye to? It's got to be a good one. Uh-huh. Oh, well, I was going to say. The, the problem is he's made so many, um, yeah, so so many he, fantastic He's got to give up one. Which one's he happy giving up to Peter Rieger? That that that's a good question. Uh, damn, I, I think he could cut Agatha, which is an underrated movie. No, that doesn't count. This has got to be like a big one. This is gonna be a big one. This got to be graduate level. Gra- the, uh, the graduate. Uh, damn. How about uh, um, Marathon Man? That's no, big. no, no. Come on, no, not prestigious that's enough. That's pretty big. This has got to be a movie that Pete, that you could potentially win an Billy Oscar Bathgate. for. No, <laughs> no. it's got to be a movie you potentially win an Oscar for. All right. Um, he, he, you can't give up. You can't. Kramer versus Kramer, because you can't give up Tootsie. Because that is, that is a phenomenal piece of I don't think he acting. gives up Kramer versus Kramer. That's the, that's the only one. You can't give up I think Midnight he, Cowboy. I think he gives up Midnight you Cowboy. Can't, that is arguably his greatest performance. I agree, but I you think that it's that the one, one he needs the least. Because when you look back at the, I think your average mope, your average schmo, your average <laughs> dummy, not any of you who listen to this podcast, you're smart people, you wouldn't listen to this podcast otherwise. Rieger might have been too young for that, but I, I know what I, you're saying. I, I think Rieger gets, I think Rieger does best at Tootsie, but there's no way Dustin Hoffman gives up Tootsie. He's too yeah. well known for it. No, he's not, he's, he's not, too great in it. He's, he's not too... giving up the roles that people approach him on the street about. But uh-huh. you know what role it isn't? It's not the Midnight Cowboy role. It's his best role. Now, unless he has personal pride, but I'm going to assume he's vain and shallow. <laughs> okay, let's let's do that. Let's so, go with that. Assuming he's vain and shallow, he's giving up the role that the least amount of people have seen, and it's Midnight Cowboy. It's got to be a big one, right? So it can't be a flop. Yeah. I think he gives up Midnight Cowboy. It is but arguably his greatest accomplishment. Right. But I don't if I'm Peter Rieger, I'm, I'm holding out for Tootsie. Because <laughs> <laughs> Tootsie, that, that would have been a career maker for a young actor. Yeah, a I young, mean, relatively unknown actor. We would be talking about Peter Rieger and Midnight Cowboy like, man, what a great performance. What happened to that guy? <laughs> but if he does Tootsie, we don't say what happened to that guy. That's Peter Rieger, the guy who won the Oscar for Tootsie. Getting back to, to yeah. Local Hero, which was a year after Tootsie, he wouldn't have made, if he had Tootsie, he probably wouldn't have made Local Hero, or there's a good chance he wouldn't. So this is what's a strange. A lot of good actors could have thrived in that role. This is what's Maybe strange. If Tootsie's that close to Local Hero, why is the, the DVD restoration of Local Hero so bad? <laughs> I mean, it feels like, when I say restoration, it feels like nothing was restored. Literally, it feels like I'm watching... You the, might have gotten your hands on an old DVD. It feels like I'm watching... <laughs> the print before it was even color corrected i can't mm-hmm. remember the last time i saw a movie so unpolished in its restoration uh-huh. it really was crazy i mean that's just a, a side note did here. you did you see the one the one that i i lent you yeah right? I, I lent uh yeah, it, it just like Sam, uh, i I, nor, that, I got that a long time ago they may have restored even, it and it's important to restore it because almost every outdoor scene in local hero yeah. looks like it was shot in magic time yeah almost there's a pink glow a wonderful, surreal pink glow. Most of it's in... Half uh, this movie's silhouetted. You know what it reminded <laughs> me of? It reminded me of Black Stallion. 
in which literally half the movie is under silhouette, you, and it's beautiful. <laughs> it's just absolutely, you can never go wrong with silhouette. <laughs> it's it's hard. It's hard. It's to, a cheap trick, <laughs> but you can't go wrong. It just <laughs> human it wasn't beings, cheap for the Black Stallion, but yeah, uh, yeah I guess you could. Human like, beings uh, love a good silhouette. Yes. All right, Steve. Give me some of your questions. Well, I'm a, I'm a little reluctant to ask one, my first one, because I'm afraid that it might give the you know the ask, ending away. Are you but, afraid um, that asking it will, or that my answer will? Well, you know what? Um, yeah, it, it'll give it away. Okay, I, I, I gotta go. Um, did you find that the townspeople's greed made them more charming? <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> that was an easy question. It made them human. It, it made that plot device. Yeah. And usually great movies aren't made on plot devices. That plot device makes this movie because this would be such an ordinary, forgettable yeah. movie if you didn't have these charming... All of them are walking around like they think they're millionaires. But what's even better <laughs> is that they have no idea what it's like to be a millionaire, so their ideas of what makes a millionaire is absolutely hysterical. For yeah. instance, <laughs> this one guy's got a boat. It's like his lobster boat, his crab boat. And he knows he's going to be a millionaire, so he's changing the name of the boat to Dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kind of a running gag because he's constantly um and the guy's asking are you signs. sure there are two l's in dollars and he's like i'm sure but like the idea he's not he doesn't even realize he can just buy a new boat he doesn't realize he can buy a new boat they say he's just gonna change the name of his boat to money some of them their imagination hasn't even caught up with the reality of being millionaires you're absolutely right at one point you know apparently they fish for lobster and then they send the lobster like over europe and then Peter Riegert says, why don't you just eat the lobster? And they go, eat it. Ugh, far too expensive. Too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> that is the kind of, This movie does have a very subtle, gentle social comedy. It's not, both playing, of these movies. it's not playing for laughs the way that Nobody's Fool is. And Nobody's right. Fool wasn't playing it that hard for laughs. Yeah. But this movie's doing it even less. There's it's a more, more subtle. It's definitely more it's subtle. It's more naturalistic. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And I... I this is another movie that put a smile on my face. You, Even though it doesn't yeah. start that way. No. We start in Houston, yeah. and it's ugly, and the sunshine is harsh. You know what? You I think here. they got a fair read on Houston. That may be. I've never been. Never, never been. I've but, never uh, been either. I've been to the airport. Uh -huh. Didn't like the airport. <laughs> Gonna judge the whole city. via One of the strangest statues I've ever seen in my life I saw in the Houston airport. Uh, this yeah. is too good to not say. I'm in the Houston airport, and I see this statue of george hw bush okay and that's not a surprise he was a texan from houston i believe uh -huh. or he lived in houston i don't know if he was actually I don't from know if houston, born there but, uh, but the point is yeah he's he's a he, they'll claim him as one of their presidents right and okay you think that's normal right like you'd see ronald reagan in the ronald reagan airport right but the thing about it is that they don't have a statue of him signing a bill or giving a speech the statue is of him trying to catch a flight like when he was a businessman Really? And what is so odd about that is that it represents this type of 1980s ideal man, which is not like the guy who finds oil in his backyard or rustles cattle or is a farmer or works, you know, building buildings. This guy was the 1980s businessman in a shitty suit trying to catch a flight with a briefcase. Like, never have I Why seen... Why on earth? Because that... that I guess when that statue was built, man, that's what that was like the time of like the kind of Gordon Gecko but blander American <laughs> capitalism, where like that was the ideal man was the guy with a computer who made money doing Lord in a job he couldn't explain it to you. <laughs> Anyways, that's kind of kind of like what uh, Peter Riegert. Uh, I'm sure he could pose for back George to your Bush question. And... The point is, without them being greedy, seventy five percent of the, the jokes in the movie don't happen. Right. So you have yeah. to. You it, have to. It, do it. It, it turns on that. Have you ever been to a place that made you feel like this town? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What is it? There is a place called... Because you've Ro- done some travel. I know you've yeah. done some travel. I, I'm glad you asked this. For anyone who listens to this, there is a place in Spain called Ronda. Um, the way this town works, it's a tiny town in Spain, in southern Spain. And it's on a gorge, okay? So the way I put it, it's almost like two cliffs with a bridge that connects the two cliffs. And, you know, on, on one one cliff, like almost like almost like us. They're, they're like kind of like on two mountains almost with flat surfaces at the top and then a bridge that connects them. Uh, so when you walk over the bridge, you see all the space around you and beneath you. And it's a tiny town. And it's just one of the most beautiful, charming places I've ever been. And I kept thinking to myself, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, it looks like Rohan. Oh, yeah. Rohan segment is what yeah, it looks yeah. like. It's just unbelievable. And one of the best meals I ever had in my life was in this town. My wife and I, we went to this hole-in-the-wall bar. All these young kids were waiting for the bar to open. It wasn't even open yet. It was like it's like 6.30 p.m. Everyone's waiting for the bar to open. It opens. We go inside. This is not a nice-looking bar. It is really kind of a dump, actually. Yeah. We sit at the counter, and all night, they feed us small plates of food, like tapas, basically, just small plates of food. They just right. keep them coming, keep them coming. We figure, man, this bill is going to be enormous because they're bringing us stuff we didn't even ask for. Turned out it was like 20 bucks a person. It was just, wow. and the whole town, by the way, was at this bar by the end of the evening. <laughs> the entire town. And, and it felt like my wife and I were the only two tourists in the whole place. Wonderful place. Couldn't recommend it wow. more. Yeah. Rhonda, really small, really. I a, hope I make it out there. It's a treasure. Time. It really is. I, I cannot, if you go to Spain, excuse me, you go see Barcelona, sure. Go to Ronda. Is can, it close to Barcelona? No, because it's in southern Spain. But that—that—that's my answer. Okay. How about oh, you? Cool. You know, uh, I asked this question hoping that you would come up with something. Um, uh, maybe this is too big. You tell me. Uh, there's this beautiful place called uh, Lucerne, Switzerland. Never Might been. Be, sounds great. Can you see uh, mountains? It's in the. It's in the Alps. It's, then you're fine. It's yeah. Magnificent. Yeah, I've always wanted beautiful. to see the Alps. I've always wanted to be in a place where I'm at the bottom and there are mountains everywhere surrounding this me. This is the perfect place because you are completely surrounded. I think 360 by the by the Alps. I don't even know how our train got in, but you are surrounded by the Alps and it is a magnificent. Here's side. what I'll say, Steve, because you asked me this question. I told you earlier today I'm moving, and when you ask, we live in the D.C. area. And when you ask me where I'm moving, my goal is to move anywhere where I don't feel like I'm in the city or a suburb, right? So I don't want to just live in a suburban area. I want to live where I can see a bay, a lake, a mountain, a pond. I got to feel like I'm living. I got to slow time down, man. When you Mm -hmm. live next to a highway and you just go to work every day, time feels fast. I have a belief that the modern world, especially if you live in urban environments, makes time feel fast and I want to slow it down. Um, and so I want to, I, the character, the Peter Rieger character, he really comes to realize the benefits of living a slower lifestyle. And I'm going to ask you a question, spoiler alert right now. I think we're basically at the end of this podcast. Turn it off if you don't want to know. <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, Good, then I can ask my question, but I, right. I get the yeah. feeling it's related. So turn it off right now if you don't want to know. Um, but here's my question to you. Um, is Peter Rieger coming back at the end of the that movie? That is my first question. Will Mac ever go back? Well, what is the phone call about? Why is the phone ringing? He's calling them, If right? I read correctly, yeah. uh, Bill Forsyth did not want that phone call. Oh, really? He didn't want it. Uh, the studio wanted... Uh, 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 not quite as sad an ending. Mm-hmm. The the ending is Peter uh, uh, 
Happer, who the CEO played by Lancaster, is so entranced with the city, mm-hmm. this little town. He decides. You can't even call it a city. Yeah, this little town. He decides he's not going to wreck it. He's going to find some place. He's else. still going to buy it. He's going to buy it. He's going to yes. turn it into an, inst- an, an astronomy institute. Right. And I get the feeling he's going to move there. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's going to sure. live there. He's never coming back. The townspeople. He are... doesn't have to come back. By the way, he's rich enough. His things will just get shipped to him. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, the townspeople, while they're not devastated, they're extremely disappointed. But they're still going to be money. They're mm-hmm. going to they're going to have a lot more money than they did because it's going to. He says he's going to buy the town. Yeah. He says. They ask him, does this mean you don't want it? He goes, no, no, no. I want it very much. But you get the feeling he wants the people, too. Yeah. <laughs> he wants I'm, the people to stay. I'm saying, but he's, I think they're all going to make almost as much money as they would have made. Probably. But the loser in all this is Mac because he's sent back to Houston. Yeah. To that sad, lonely, elegant, uh, high-tech you know, high yeah. uh, apartment. Right. And uh, the very last scene we see is this 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 red phone booth, which is where it was the only. This was the only portal, the only phone out in town. This is the only phone town. in town. And the thing is, it's it's in the middle of town, but it also has this magnificent view of the bay and of the sky. Yep. And that's where he was doing all these reports from. And we hear this 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 thing ringing, and the studio. If if I read this correctly, the studio insisted that this. Uh, that they, they leave some sort of hope that he might come back. But in my opinion, that phone call is the saddest thing in the whole movie. He just it's wants so somebody sad. to pick up. He wants a connection. He, he, yeah. yeah. I'm going to say he's coming back. He's got nothing keeping him in Houston. Nothing. Literally except, nobody. Except inertia. Um, I think he's coming back because there's nobody keeping him there. I mean, in one of the saddest parts of the movie, he asks his secretary to like go out to drinks with him, and she's like, No. She doesn't tell him. She doesn't tell him that she's busy. She doesn't even manage an excuse. Just, yeah, just, no. <laughs> no. So, so I think I, I see how you're reading it. Mm-hmm. I think the director would prefer it the way you're reading it. Yeah. I'm reading it that he's coming back because if you're gonna have something silly as silly as Burt Lancaster's character, be like, I'm buying the place. <laughs> I'm buying the place. If, if if you're getting that kind of happy ending, and if it is, a, yeah. if it's a fairy tale, he's coming back. That's true. And the problem is, I'd he, like to think he, he's the coming only back. way. That the movie's indicating he's not coming back is if Burt Lancaster's character doesn't buy the town. Yeah. But if because he buys the town, it suggests it's a fairy tale and there's happy endings, which means he's coming back. Yeah. Here, here's the only thing I, I think Forsyth wanted to say. No one, you know, you, you don't win if you're from, uh, you know, the West. There was a point where we, when they were talking about how, having to negotiate, but in the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie. Uh, one of the execs talks about with Rieger about having to negotiate with these people. And said, well, it's not like they're, this is the third world. Yeah. Which was a, right. which has become a, an insult now. The fact is, that is a third world. Yeah. It kind of, it has all the charm and the beauty and the, and, and the, the absolute difference. But their lives you know? are hard. Their lives are hard and that's why they want to sell. That's because, every, yeah, everybody's doing multiple, multiple Can jobs. You got any other questions for me? Um, um, Yes. Is humiliation therapist the greatest job in the world or not? <laughs> I don't know if it's a good job, but I'll tell you one thing. I'd be good at it. I'd be really good at right it, man. I, just, I know people's weaknesses, man. I see their soft points. Give the audience your phone number. Let them, uh, if, if, you, if, you need a, if you need a humiliation therapist. If you want somebody to insult you really badly, I don't think you could do much better than me, boy. Let me tell you right now. Anything else? Uh, the pitch. Okay. You want to do yours first? Uh, if I can find it. All right. I'll do mine first. Okay. So my pitch is Northern Exposure meets Straw Dogs. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> so basically, you strayed. You use the TV series, but it's it's yeah. a perfect. It's yeah. you. That's the perfect. Once uh, again, pitch. Dustin Hoffman. Right? <laughs> this movie is straw. Gives dogs. straw dogs to Peter. I Riegert. kept <laughs> I kept waiting for Peter Rieger to get in a gunfight with the people in this town, <laughs> but it just never happens. You know, it's, this really is this is straw dogs. Minus everything that happens in Straw Dogs. By the way, <laughs> I don't like Straw Dogs. I don't need that in my life. I really don't. Uh, I got to a point in my life where, um, yeah, uh, I, I don't need I, I don't need to prove that I'm a tough moviegoer by getting kicked in the teeth. And uh, yeah. Straw Dogs is kind of a kick in the teeth. Yeah. Okay. Have you found yours? <laughs> yes. Uh, Brigadoon meets Wall Street. <laughs> now I don't know. Okay, yeah, I, yeah, I know what Wall Street is. What is Brigadoon? Uh, Brigadoon was this. Uh, it was this movie. I think it was a musical first. It was a Scottish Highland uh, place. Okay, where pe- uh, that went to sleep for like every two hundred years and would waken one day. Oh. and the people waken. It's a fantasy. It's a fairy tale. I want to see fairy that. Tale. I like that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of cheating in that. Uh, uh, my favorite film reviewer, Pauline Kale, mentioned that it was kind of Brigadoon, but I, I added the <laughs> Brigadoon meets Wall Street. Um, anyway, uh, in the 20th century, when they when they waken up, uh, these two, I think it's Gene Kelly and Van Johnson, they stumble upon this town and they don't get it. They don't understand why these people are acting so weird. And I'm not even sure the, the, the people in the town are in on yeah. it. But like 200 years or, or 87 years or something like that had passed. Yeah. Since, since the, it's a very, very magical That looks kind like a good thing. movie. Oh, uh, you have to see it. And, and I will see it. It's been a long time since I saw it. I can barely remember it, but I do remember the pretext. Kind of interesting. The, uh, you have you know Westerner people yeah. visiting this place, and they come thoroughly enchanted. Right on. All right, Steve. Yeah. Any other final thoughts on this movie? Just see both of these movies. Yeah, they are they are charmers. Look, they're they're see, wonderful experience. Here, here's what I want to say, because I think that the topic's more important than the movies. See movies about people. Don't see movies about scenarios. See movies about humans, not situations, because the movie industry has turned into a situational industry. We're basically watching situational dramas and situational sitcoms, like sitcom. I don't, saying situational sitcoms is actually redundant. Um, mm. But the point is, mo- the, the premise of movies today is extraordinary person in extraordinary circumstance or ordinary person in extraordinary circumstance who as a result becomes extraordinary, right? Mm. It's It's taken... It's the Marvel. It's it's the Spider Man thing, right? Normal boy gets bit by a spider, becomes a superhero, and that says nothing about people because that's not what life is like. Our lives are mundane, and we have to find meaning in them. We have to analyze them the way that they are, and we have got to figure out what the greater purpose of them is, so that we don't fall into a nihilistic abyss. Um, and we could fall into a nihilistic abyss if we thought that death was the end and everything was meaningless. And we can't do that. We've got, there's a greater purpose in this. And the reason I love watching these movies is they make me feel good. They make me feel good about my life. And not in a way where it's like, oh, it's nice to see happy endings and good things happen to good people. No, it, they're meant to make you appreciate what it is to exist in the way that we as humans exist. There's, there are a few things that are difficult, as difficult to take as a mockish feel-good movie. Yeah, right. That was nothing that will drive me right. out of a movie yeah. than, you know, than, uh, I don't know, a forced family Yeah, we're not talking movie. Ron Howard. We're not talking Ron Howard here, right? Which is like his bullshit 
patriot. He's 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 like a combination of like bullshit and patriotic bullshit. Um, there's a lot of bullshit with. He Ron wasn't Howard. always that way. He wasn't always that. Yeah, way. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, Cocoon's a decent movie. Um, well, I was thinking of Splash. Splash was Ru- wonderful. Splash is a wonderful. Mm-hmm. Splash is kind of it has yeah. the same kind yeah. of temperament as as Rush this is a great movie, or even better, Steven Spielberg. I mean, the ultimate mm-hmm. and just horseshit. Um, <laughs> no, but the real like the last picture show style movies. These yeah. movies tell us. So they give us insight like the great novels do on what it is to live. And that's the, that's why I really, if you want to be serious about movies, it's not about watching Citizen Kane or The Godfather. It's just about watching movies that tell you something about life. That's what's important. Tell you something, and the only way you can do that is by watching movies about people. It's the most practical way to do it. Yeah, if you want some time with interesting people, how about that? If you want yeah. time right. listening and watching to amusing, entertaining people, these are, the, these are your movies— and you know, take a break from the from yeah. the superhero gutter. Stop being a dope. <laughs> Stop being a fucking dope. Don't be a rube. Stop being a rube for the movie industry. But if if, if you're listening to this podcast, we already know you got class. Yeah, you're not a dope. Don't mean to <laughs> tell your cousin. Tell your tell your cousin at Thanksgiving what a dope. You're they not are. going to the latest uh, yeah. Captain Captain Marvel yeah. movie. Okay, make sure you ruin Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's right. All right, Steve. This was a good one. I'll talk to you later. Awesome. Uh,